Vermont Viewpoint is a public affairs program produced and funded by WDEV and the Radio Vermont Group. We welcome listener feedback. Email your comments to vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. From WDEV in Waterbury, welcome to Vermont Viewpoint, the live radio show where we talk to everyone building the new Vermont and protecting the old one. I'm Kevin Ellis in the chair and at the mic where we take you beyond the headlines to explain how Vermont and the nation really work. And to do that, we talk with guests in Vermont and around the country of all kinds with different different points of view. Our goal, as always, is exploration and insight. We take your calls, as always, at 244-1777 and your emails at vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. We want to hear from you. Today is a packed show, so buckle in. First, we get a COVID update with a really great guest. This is the Chief Science and Global health reporter from the New York Times in New York. Apoorva Mandavili will join us. Then it's to Washington for further discussion with our correspondent Bob Ney of the President's State of the Union and All Things D.C. We'll talk with Seven Days uh, reporter Courtney Lambden about her story about the politics of police in Burlington. And we'll wrap up with open phones, although I think we had to move Courtney to 1045. So uh, we'll do open phones at 1015 um, and be uh, flexible, able to accommodate guest schedules as we need to. Uh, but first, let's do some headlines. Uh, three Vermont miners have died from fentanyl-related overdoses since 2021. Um, and then you have the... Uh, superintendent of the Montpelier Roxbury School District saying basically that there is a mental health crisis uh, going on in schools uh, and that schools have basically been forced to form their own mental health uh, uh, centers at the schools. And this jumped out at me uh, in a VT Digger story where um, – where Franklin Northeast Supervisory Union Superintendent Lynn Coda said the following before the House Education Committee. There comes a point, a breaking point, where things start to break, Coda said. And I think we are dangerously close to a breaking point with all that we're trying to hold in public education. She said that in the legislature yesterday before the House Education Committee, <clears throat> and she used an analogy of an egg during a PowerPoint presentation where the egg was sandwiched between a, a, a vice and the pressure was building and eventually there are cracks in the egg. And what she's saying is that egg, when it comes to the mental health of students and staff in our public school system, is at the breaking point. Now, let's go over that for a minute. Again, we'll take your calls, 244-1777 on this Friday. Um she, uh, Superintendent Coda described that over the last five years, schools have faced a two-pronged challenge, increased mental health needs from children and a lack of resources to provide treatment for those mental health needs. Now, I know that there are lots of people out there of my generation saying, wait a minute, we, uh, we didn't have these problems. Um, you know, in the over 
50 to 60 to 70 years old generation. I know that people are saying that. And uh, I, I, from personal experience, I taught a class at UVM last semester, and I saw this as well. These uh, these young people are uh, have mental health challenges that surprised me as a classroom teacher. And now what's happening is that our uh, teachers and superintendents, school board officials, are warning us that this is a crisis. So uh, what's the difference between uh, yesteryear, the golden age of Leave it to Beaver, uh, the way we all grew up, where everything was fine, and today when we are being told there is a mental health crisis out there. Uh, on on the show next Wednesday, we're going to explore this issue with Mark Redman, who is the boss over at Spectrum Family Youth Services in Burlington. They care for homeless, mentally challenged uh, kids on the street. And Mark's gonna Mark's been at this for 25 years, and we're gonna get into that and into this with him. Uh, I've invited Superintendent Montpelier Roxbury Public School Superintendent Libby Bonesteel back on the show to talk about this. Uh, she's quoted in this Digger story saying, "Every school system in Washington County right now is essentially building our own mini mental health agencies within our buildings." We are doing this not because we feel it is our job or our area of expertise, because is because it is not. We are doing this out of desperation. And then Lynn Coda went on to say, you probably don't often get people that come to you and say, we're not asking you for anything. We're, and she went on to say, we're just telling you that this is happening. So uh, the legislature is looking at this uh, at the same time. They are looking at major proposals around child care to increase what child care uh, providers are paid and to increase the number of child care facilities so that young families have a place for their children to go. Now, again, those of you over 60 years old are probably saying, as I am tempted to sometimes do, well, wait a minute, we didn't have this uh, when we were kids. I think what we're going to find, the answer, is going to be multi-pronged and complicated. Um, I was, uh, you know, my, my wife wanted to stay home uh, and raise children. Uh, it was the thing she really wanted to do. But we now live in an economy that does not allow that anymore, except for a privileged few uh, who make good money. But middle-class families are struggling in this system that we have built and they need child care. And then the legislature is considering yet another proposal around paid family leave uh, in order to provide uh, 12 weeks and others uh, for uh, bereavement and the birth of a child, et cetera, et cetera. All these come with a price tag. But what we're really talking about here is the priorities that we have as a society. And we're going to take this on in future shows. We're going to do mental health next Wednesday. Uh, and we'll get to those other issues. But uh, it's all happening at the legislature right now. Uh, check out VT Digger for um, all the details. Uh, and then 
because these are issues and COVID is a huge part of this as we dovetail into our, our first guest after the break. Um, COVID's going to be a huge part of the mental health, uh, discussion, the childcare discussion, the paid family leave proposal in the legislature. Um, these, the, the last now three years of COVID, uh, is going to play a huge part in the discussion around the mental health of not just the students in our schools, but the teachers and the staff. So let's take a break. We're going to come back with Apoorva Mondavili, the lead global health writer for the New York Times, for a COVID update nationally. And we'll talk to her about how Vermont has handled COVID as well. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. Did you know that Radio Vermont Group Digital Services can create videos including drone footage? We've even won awards for our videos. If you'd like to learn more and see examples of our work, go to rvgdigital.com. Radio Vermont Group, we're more than just radio. We're back. The COVID discussion is nothing if not important. Some 500 people continue to die every day in this country from the virus, and the way we've dealt with it in Vermont and around the country is one of the more fascinating and often tragic social phenomenons I personally have ever witnessed. Most of us have moved on. Others continue to wear masks in public, especially in tight spaces. Our behavior breaks down by certainly by age as young people move on with their lives while older folks continue to think about it and wonder. Masks, no masks, boosters, no boosters, flu shot, no flu shot. I love to hate big pharma, but then they were part of the fastest vaccine trial in history that experts like our next guest say may have saved thousands and thousands of lives. Here to discuss this, for my money, the best journalist in the country writing about a very tough and complicated subject. She writes about it and talks about it with a clarity that helps us understand rather than get lost in the scientific jargon. She is the science and global health reporter for the New York Times. Her name is Apoorva Mandavili, and she joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Um, the Biden administration said this week that it would end the public health emergency for COVID, closing this chapter of the pandemic three years after it started. Can you just... Take us back and tell us what that means, that, uh, the, why the public health emergency was put in place and what it means to take it away. Yeah, so the public health emergency is something that the federal government does when we're faced with a public health crisis like COVID. In the case of the pandemic, that went into effect very early in the pandemic. It was actually January 31st, 2020. The government recognized that this virus is here and it's probably going to do some damage. And so they put this public health emergency into place then. And what that allows states and hospitals and the federal government to do is sort of go outside the normal framework where they would do things, you know, all the restrictions for what they would cover or not cover. It just gives a lot more flexibility for everybody to cope with the crisis. And so we've been in that state of public health emergency since January 31st, 2020, and it's been renewed every 90 days. But now the Biden administration is saying, we don't really think we're in an emergency anymore. And we're going to end this thing as of May 11th. And so what does that take away in terms of the tools that the government and the society have to fight the virus? And what does it do 
in terms of testing and uh, vaccines? Yeah, it does a lot, actually. Um, for us, you know, for the average person, we were getting a lot of help because of this public health emergency in terms of tests and vaccines and drugs. Everything was essentially free for everybody throughout the pandemic. And what this public health emergency does is it takes away the free for a lot of it. So vaccines will continue to be free for pretty much everybody, except those who don't have any insurance, um, because it's covered in, <clears throat> excuse me, it's covered under the Affordable Care Act. But um, people who don't have insurance will need to pay out of pocket. And that could be as much as $100, $130 that companies will now start to charge on their own. And the government is not going to be subsidizing it for us. So people will need to pay out of pocket if they don't have the right kind of insurance, which is, you know, private insurance, Medicare, Medicaid. If you don't have any of those, which is a lot of people in this country. It's 30, 30 million people, right? Exactly. 30 million uninsured people. And there may be more because one of the things that happened during the public health emergency is that states were not allowed to kick people off Medicaid. But that's going to end as of April. So starting at the beginning of April, the states are going to start reevaluating who qualifies for Medicaid. And if you don't, you know, you get kicked off, then you join the ranks of the uninsured. So that 30 million could swell by as much as another 12 to 15 million. So. Vaccines could be a problem for all of those people. Um, tests, you know, we were all getting eight free tests a month because of whatever kind of insurance we had, and we were getting tests from the government, and that will not be the case anymore. So if you want a test, you're going to have to go buy it yourself from the store, or if you want a PCR test, you're going to have to have a doctor prescribe it for you. Um, and, you know, how much of that gets covered also depends on which doctor you go to. If you go out of network, you may have out-of-pocket costs. Same thing with treatments. It's basically like saying COVID is now like every other disease. You know, it could be like anything else that you have, high blood pressure drug, you know, diabetes drug, arthritis drug, all the things that we now have to sort of deal with insurance companies for, COVID will be like that for anybody with private insurance. I I know you're not a political reporter, uh, but I wonder if you might discuss with us the politics of this, of the why the Biden administration would do this is it because they are facing pressure from a newly strengthened Republican House of Representatives that that just passed a bill saying that the the pandemic is over? Or is it something political that I'm missing? Well, I think the pandemic is over. It has a lot to do with it. So, um, you know, the, the Biden administration has been saying throughout that they would give states a lot of lead time before they end the pandemic. Because, you know, as I said, that we put all these things into place. It takes time to unwind all of those and go back to normal. Right. So they always said they would give some advance notice. But then what happened last week is that the House passed this pandemic is over act, which means they said, basically, we've been saying the pandemic is over for a long time. We think it should all be done now. And the second this becomes law, everything should end. And of course, that didn't actually have a real chance of becoming law. But they, you know, just the sort of the, the, the optics of it all made it so that the Biden administration had to say, well, OK, this is we agree. Pandemic is over. But we want to do this the way that we think it makes sense, which is to give everybody a lot of lead time to undo these things. And so that was sort of the timing there where, you know, the, the House passed it on Tuesday and the Biden administration came out with this Monday night. So it was all very, very timed. 
Okay, I, I've spent my life in politics, and for the life of me, I'm having trouble understanding the uh, the, the, the politics of this. But I've been wrong about so many things in the past. Um, okay, so what you're saying, the summary here is that the public emergency is going to go away in May, and what that does is it takes away the muscle from the federal government to take all sorts of uh, steps to protect against the virus, and it does away with the uh, millions and millions in subsidies to lower the cost of testing uh, and vaccines and other things that we need to stay safe. That's right. That's right. And we, we will face a lot of changes in the coming months, and we're going to have to transition to this period when we think about COVID like other diseases, but it's going to be a bit rough, a bit bumpy, because we have had a lot of cushions over the past three years. Right. I, I, yeah, the ability to pull up in your car to a testing station and have your nose swabbed when I was in California in the early stages of the pandemic at some fairgrounds and pay nothing. Uh, that's going away, right? That is going away. And, you know, the other thing for people with private insurance and even Medicare, you know, if, if you're doctor doesn't take that kind of insurance. You know, we're also used to thinking about in-network, out-of-network, how much do we pay out-of-pocket? We didn't have to worry about any of that during the pandemic. But now we're going to have to go back to that system where, again, you have to really think through, where do I need to go to keep my costs at a minimum? So in Vermont, if you're on uh, Vermont Health Connect, everybody out there, if you're on the platinum plan or if the silver plan or the uh, whatever plan, uh, get ready to pay a deductible, I think, is what the, the message is to Vermonters. Um, uh, we, in Vermont, we are approaching, Apurva, the, uh, the, the thousand death milestone in, in Vermont. And I know, uh, you're based in New York, but our governor and our state government have really gotten high marks. Uh, for the way they handled uh, the, the the pandemic from the very start. I mean, we have a overwhelmingly liberal Democratic legislature, but a very Republican, uh, a very popular Republican governor um, who spent months having uh, briefings side by side with our health commissioner uh, every single day. Uh, and he got high marks throughout. Does that does that uh, resonate into your world, the way Vermont's handled this? Absolutely. You know, throughout the pandemic, I was spending a lot of time looking at how different states were handling things. And as you know, based on who the governor is, the the response was just really wildly variable. And Vermont certainly had, even though you have a Republican governor, the the policies were more in line with a lot of states that are Democrat-led. And the vaccination rates in Vermont are just really impressive. I think you're only behind Rhode Island. 84% are fully vaccinated. You look at a state like Mississippi or Alabama, it's barely over 50 percent. So they can be a huge difference. And Vermont certainly came out towards the top in terms of the thoughtfulness and, you know, mask mandates, the vaccination efforts, all of that. And, you know, I think you're seeing part of that play out in how low your rates have been almost throughout, you know, other than Omicron last winter, you've had a pretty low baseline throughout. And I think that that really speaks to efforts being made in the state it's yeah and i think size matters i mean you 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 have the ability to have a press briefing by the governor and the entire 
you know, the, the, our channel three news and our VT, I mean, they, the, our media covers the entire state. So the governor can talk to, and, and, uh, the radio stations, the governor can talk to every single citizen in the state whenever he wants. And I think that's a huge advantage compared to a place like California, which is so divided geographically. Having said that, there are some challenges to being a very small state also because, you know, through the pandemic, when you're trying to sort of identify the number of cases, for example, a state like Vermont has to worry a lot more about whether somebody is identifiable. So your state was doing a lot of gymnastics trying to make sure that people's identities were not revealed, you know, by, by their location or their age or sex. Everything had to be anonymized in a very careful way to make sure that, you know, people were protected. Yes, and we, that's true, and we kind of prize our privacy up here. Um, and so I, yeah, it's, there's, <laughs> we have no shortage of skepticism of uh, big government here, and yet we elect a, a, a Bernie Sanders and a very, very liberal legislature. So the, um, it's a, it's a strange dichotomy worth, always worth exploring. So I, I want to ask you about, before we go to a quick break, the vaccines we so from the beginning okay everyone loves to hate big pharma and then big pharma is marshaled into a campaign to uh do a first in history uh vaccine development faster than any time and now the public health emergency is going to be rescinded and they are going to raise the price of their vaccine correct that is correct and <laughs> Let me just say, though, that they, they have been um, really quite impressive in how quickly they have made things happen. But let's not also forget that the federal government gave them billions of dollars. They didn't just get there, you know, off their own goodwill. They had a lot of support and, and purchase guarantees, money to help develop the vaccine. There was a lot of investment that went into it from American taxpayers. And and this was done. This is what we remember under the Trump administration as Operation Warp Speed. And I saw in an interview you did, uh, you were asked, well, why why are they being allowed to, to do this? And you talked about the agreements that were made in what you called the fog of war. Right. Yeah. So, you know, Operation Warp Speed did a lot of things right. Um, including getting things moving really fast. They, they sort of took away a lot of the roadblocks to the normal, very slow development and approval of drugs and vaccines, and they really sped things up. But one of the things they did not do well from my conversations with people who were involved is because everything moved so fast, the companies were given a lot of leeway in what they did, how they did it, what they tested, what they did with the data afterwards, the government really did not put in as much muscle for itself in terms of being able to demand, we want you to do X, Y, Z. You know, the FDA can ask the companies to do something, but really they didn't reserve the right for themselves. The government did not reserve the right to demand that the companies do certain things. And I've talked to people who were involved and said, you know, if I had to do this all over again, this would be done very differently. We would require the companies to do certain kinds of tests and to continue to give us the data, full access to every piece of data rather than have them in the driver's seat. So we are now in a free market with regard to the price of vaccines. We are. And Pfizer wow. and Moderna, you know, have seen this coming, this idea yeah. that the public health emergency will be over. It's not right. a real surprise to anyone that it was going to end. And so even last fall, they were already starting to talk about how much they would charge. They've said they would charge somewhere between, you know, 100 to $130 um, 
we'll see where that actually ends up because, you know, insurance companies and, and government programs can negotiate some lower prices, but that is what they've said so far. We're talking about COVID and the upcoming lifting of the public health emergency by the Biden administration, which Apoorva says basically equates the pen, the, the virus to diabetes or other diseases. And I want to go back there, Apoorva, if I could. Uh, but it's really not like diabetes, right? I mean, it, it, this is a, now we're going to get into the prediction business, but it, it is, it is a virus that we still don't know a lot about and could come roaring back at any moment. Uh, or am I just putting words in your mouth? <laughs> No, I would agree with that. I think, you know, we all want to be done with things. We all want to move on. But yes, you're absolutely right. We don't know a ton about this virus yet. We've learned a lot over the last three years, but we still don't really know when during the year it might come back. We think probably every fall and winter we'll see a wave, but we don't know if there will be another one in the spring, another one in the summer. Certainly in previous years, we've seen waves, you know, throughout the year, different times, different times in the south and in the northeast. And we we have a lot more to learn about what this virus will do. And we've seen the virus get more and more and more contagious. Every variant so far has been much more contagious than the previous one. And these last variants that we've seen, the Omicron variants, have been fairly immunizative. They can get around immunity, at least in terms of infection, pretty well. So we've seen people continue to get sick, even if they're not, you know, ending up being hospitalized. But it will matter more for you know, a state like Vermont, where you have an aging population and your your median age is a lot higher than the national average. So you, you know, this will be a virus that will be of great concern to people who are uh, immune compromising one way or another, either because they're older or because they're, they have an immunocompromising medical condition or they're pregnant. And if you have an aging population, you can expect to see some number of people hospitalized and dying from this for quite a while. Uh I want to get to masks, if I could, and human behavior. Um, I'm the father of four, and mo- most of my kids are – they're not just done with it. And they live in New York City, uh, California, and uh, Washington, D.C. They're not just done with it. They are vehemently done with it. And they are going to shows and doing what young people do in cities. And it's almost like uh, – and they get it and then they – I mean they – you know, they they do what young people do. They think they're invincible and, and, and whereas my wife and I are constantly uh, running the odds and she wears a mask more than I do and uh, you're constantly looking around at yourself at our, at our own behavior. How, how has your reporting informed what looks to be this sort of generational breakdown and also political ideological breakdown around mask wearing and human behavior? Yeah, well, let's talk about the age thing first. I think that's a little bit easier to understand because, right. as we know, this virus does have a very, very sharp sort of age divide. And it, it is much more dangerous for people who are older. Even now, if you look at who's in the hospitals, it's mostly people who are over 70, over 75. So it's somewhat appropriate for your kids to think, you know, they're they're okay and they don't really need to wear a mask because they, if they get infected, they may not end up in the hospital. However, it does mean that if they get sick, they're going to pass the virus on, keep the virus moving around the population, and it then may reach somebody who is more vulnerable. So that's, um, as you said, not something that young people spend a lot of time thinking about, protecting society at large. But I think that's where a lot of that, that age divide comes from. 
politically, I mean, we've seen basically that it's very sharply divided between Republicans and Democrats. That pandemic is over act it tells us everything we need to know, right? It's called pandemic is over because the Republicans really, truly believe that this virus is not a threat. And many of them have believed that for a couple of years now. So that, or if not right from the start. So that, I think, is a huge divide that we have had a lot of trouble breaching in this country. And it's it's still incredibly polarized. A lot of states now have, you know, still very low vaccination rates. But if their people are protected, it's because everyone got infected rather than because they went out and got vaccinated. And so it's that I think we will continue to see play out. And I cannot see, even if we have a really fearsome variant come our way, I can't see some of those states ever going back to mass mandates or anything close to that. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, you know, 500 people a day are still dying. And I, I go back to, I remember saying this to myself at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, if 500 people a day were dying in plane crashes, our society would come to a halt and the entire political system would be focused on this. Uh, I know they're not the same, but it is a jarring statistic nonetheless. It's really horrifying. Right. And the most horrifying part of it is that we talk about this virus like it's nothing anymore. And it's, that's really not true. 450 people a day right now. I mean, that's a lot of people. Yeah. And we seem to be thinking about this. You know, the, the thing that I hear the most often, which I'm sure you do too, is it's just like the flu. It's not like the flu. We don't have this many people die of the flu every year. And yet people really want to see it as the same thing. I think a lot of that, as we've said, psychologically, people are just ready to move on and they want to think of it as a manageable threat the way that the flu is. But really, we're not anywhere close to this being the flu. What does your reporting tell you in other countries and how how is their behavior different from us in the United States? We're seeing this play out worldwide, honestly, everywhere people are done. I think in, in Europe, in, you know, in Africa, people were done a while back. Uh, in Australia and New Zealand, everywhere people are done. And what we're seeing play out pretty much everywhere in the world is that there is a subset of the population that's careful, whether they're, they're higher at risk or because they're just really conscientious or they're just cautious by nature. They are going around still wearing masks and making sure they get all their booster shots. But the majority of the population pretty much everywhere is done and not willing to wear masks anymore and not really willing to go out and get another shot. Right. It's, 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 uh, boy, this human behavior thing is, uh, you know, I, I know, I mean, I've read interviews with you where you have, uh, children of your own and you, you've been forced to deal with this issue personally. Uh, how have you navigated your personal life, uh, in New York? You know, I think when the government says the emergency is over or when the government says we don't think masks are needed anymore, there's no mask mandates anymore, I think what that basically means is everybody makes the decisions for themselves, right? So mine has been a lot of situational uh, precautions. So yesterday I went to a show, a music show, and it was in a, you know, an auditorium that was not huge. So I was wearing a mask and I wore a mask on the subway to get there. And quite a few people actually on the subway were wearing masks as well. I would say maybe about a third, which, you know, surprisingly high. Um, but, you know, I, I, I think you have to sort of make that decision for yourself. Everywhere I've gone where there are people, a crowded situation indoors, I try to wear a mask. And if it's outdoors, I don't wear a mask. I never really have. And you have to sort of make that calculation, you know, on an individual basis. For my kids, they wore a mask in school for 
quite a long time. They don't anymore. And I think part of that is, you know, now I now have a teenager who won't do anything that his right. friends don't do. So right. <laughs> if, they, if nobody else is wearing a mask, he's not going to wear one either. So I think there's a lot of that kind of, you know, want, not wanting to stand out, not wanting to do things that really make people look at you strangely. We, you know, decisions being made for all kinds of psychological reasons. But, I, you know, I'm pretty tough. So I, I just do what I feel is right. And I do wear a mask in a lot of situations. And and perhaps that's as it should be. I mean, uh, the United States has a revolutionary history, uh, the don't tread on me ethic. And we're going to keep it seems to, that that seems to be reflected in the way our society is dealing with this, which is some of people are going to say, you're not going to tell me what to do. You're not going to tell me to put on a mask. Whereas the folks in Europe are might be behave or or in Scandinavia behave a little differently about that, and we're gonna if they're if we're gonna suffer from some of those decisions, so be it. We're gonna have jammed emergency rooms, and and uh, we're just gonna have to deal with it. I, it's sort of endemic to American culture, right? <laughs> and it's not new, right? I mean, we right. we've had, historically we've had about fifty percent flu vaccination rates, and that's another case where. You know, somebody who's relatively young and healthy may not get super sick, but you really get the flu vaccine, not just for yourself. You get it for all the older people and children in your lives and other, you know, immunocompromised people. And a lot of Americans just aren't willing to do that. It's a, it's a very individualistic society, as you said. And, you know, places where there is nationalized health care, there's a little bit more awareness and a little bit more acknowledgement that we are all in a society together. And so sometimes you have to do things for other people, even if, you know, you don't think you're at risk. Uh, I know you're busy, and before we let you go, and um, we're grateful for you joining us, uh, can you talk about what your reporting has told you about COVID and its effect on mental health? We're, uh, we've, uh, our media is now full of, and our legislature is hearing every day now from, uh, superintendents, school principals, and students and parents saying, our kids are in crisis. It is a mental health emergency, and we're turning our schools into mental health MASH units. Because we're not getting the services we need. I know COVID is a huge part of that, but I can't quite figure out why. What do you know about that? We were in sort of a mental health crisis even leading up to the pandemic. You know, anxiety and depression rates were just skyrocketing among adolescents and and teenagers. And I think COVID really made that worse because it, it isolated them. It kept them away from their friends. It really disrupted their lives. You know, there were kids who were supposed to be going to college and weren't going anywhere in person. And there were kids in high school who, you know, as we know, socialization at that age is just incredibly important. And I think that contributed a lot to sense of, you know, uncertainty that we all coped with, but uh, was particularly hard for, for kids who are old enough to understand what's going on. And so I think that we're seeing a lot of that play out. I remain optimistic that some of these things will, will settle down over the next few years. But at the moment, we are in a crisis because we also don't have enough professionals in this country. We don't have really anywhere you know, the kind of child psychiatrist we need. And we, we don't have psychiat- enough psychiatrists, period, uh, to, to help everybody. The one silver lining from the pandemic has been telehealth. You know, there are... We, those benefits will be extended through 2024, and I think we've seen during the pandemic that people can and do get help remotely. And I know a lot of people who have taken advantage of that to get therapy, you know, with a, a, a through Zoom essentially, which is you know not as good as the real thing, but still goes pretty far, especially when you have you know, such a shortage of professionals who can help. Uh, last question: I saw you describe once the. Uh 
pandemic as a, a cross-country road trip from New York to San Francisco. And <laughs> and if we beat this thing and, and come out the other side, we will have reached San Francisco. Where do you think we are right now on that road trip? Yeah, I, this is not something I really hate to do, which is figure out yeah. where we are. Yeah. I'm not good with directions to begin with. And for certainly for this pandemic, it's very, very difficult to figure out where we are. But right. I would say we're not anywhere near San Francisco. We're probably somewhere in the Midwest, somewhere farther along. But the thing, the main thing, I think, is that I don't know that we were really headed to San Francisco. I think we we had this idea that we were going to get there and everything would be great, but I'm not sure that was ever going to be the case. I think we're we're headed someplace like Denver. Well, and then, uh, yeah, and we're probably, uh, or maybe somewhere in Iowa uh, near a chicken farm uh, infested (laughs) with avian flu, uh, and we'll have you on again to talk about that problem. <laughs> uh, let's hope not. Yeah. Uh, Porva Mandavili, you're very kind to join us. Uh, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Okay. Uh, Porva Mandavili, global health reporter for the New York Times. Uh, it doesn't get better than that. I, you know, you can, uh, people have their different political views, but if, if we really are in a cornfield in Iowa unable to, See the, 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 see out from the cornfield. If you read people like her, you can at least get informed. We're going to take a break. We'll come back on open phones. I hope Bill from Callis will call back. I, uh, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get to him, but we, we just had so many good questions for her. So Bill from Callis, call back. We'll take your call. You're listening to WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis on Vermont Viewpoint. We'll be right back. We're back. Well, that was a bracing conversation with Apoorva Mondavili. I spent all last night pronouncing that name over and over so I wouldn't mess it up on the on the call. Uh, boy, she's clear. She is really clear. Um, I haven't understood this thing from the start, but um, you just get you just get mired in the cloud of, uh, as she said, the fog of war around this thing. And five hundred people a day. Well, four. Four something, 450 people dying a day. And as I said from the beginning, if a plane went down with 450 people every day in this country, there would be the place, the society would come to a halt and, uh, planes would be grounded. And, and, uh, I, I realized that a pandemic is a completely different animal, but, um, it, it's just, uh, it's good to have an authority on that can explain things where we're going. I like the analogy of a, cross-country road trip, and we're trying to get to San Francisco to beat this thing, but we're stuck somewhere in Iowa or Colorado. Um, so it, uh, I wanted to get more to the mental health uh, issue with her because the it's really a jarring story in seven days in uh, VT Digger uh, yesterday and this morning about uh, superintendents, uh, going to the House Education Committee and saying that they're basically, uh, the mental health emergency among students is such that they are basically creating, uh, mental health mash units at schools. Not because they want to, or not because they have the expertise, but because the need is there and they're not getting the resources. That issue is going to filter up to the people who spend money at the legislature. It's going to filter up to the governor very, very quickly and expect to see some action in the budget discussions going on at the legislature around mental health. It's already happening. 
but uh, there's something going on in the society. Uh, we the, the, we paid family leave, child care. Uh, obviously, the climate situation is hovering off there and the off our shoulder or smacking us in the face, depending on your point of view. Um, and this mental th- mental health thing is is sort of another brick on the load. And uh, our legislature is going to have a huge, has a huge a job ahead of it to figure out how to prioritize the way we invest money in a civil society. As I said before, um, we are going to spend next Wednesday's show with Mark Redman from Spectrum Family Youth Services because we're going to dig into this mental health issue. Uh, I've invited Libby Bonesteel, the, uh, Ro- the Montpelier-Roxbury superintendent, back on the show to talk about that because she's articulate in that way. Uh, until then, we're taking your calls, 244-1777, and uh, email is uh, vtviewpoint at radiovermont.com. Uh, you may have noticed in Digger this morning also that uh, since 2021, we've had three minors die from fentanyl uh, overdoses. Um, again, I, I hate to be uh, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but there's and you know to a certain extent that's the job of the media. So um, there is uh, you know we're the, keep your eye on the legislature. There's going to be a, a lot happening. Um, where the, they are, there's a bill trying to ban paramilitary training facilities uh, that's that's gaining support in the legislature. But boy, there's going to be an issue about enforcement and uh, civil liberties, etc. Uh, before we go on to the next headline, let's talk to Fred from Newberry. Fred, you're on the line. Welcome to the show. Morning. Morning. Hey, this is very interesting. Uh, you should read it. It's called Unconditional Warfare. You can get it on the Internet. It's double-spaced. It'll probably take about maybe 100 pages to do it. But it was written by Chinese uh, uh, army colonels. And this Unconditional Warfare goes over every aspect of war. And as far as the Chinese are concerned, that's what they're doing now. Economic war, political war. Uh, biological war, COVID, chemical warfare, fentanyl, and the government just is hanging around, doesn't know what to do. We've taken more casualties in this chemical warfare than we did in Vietnam and Korea. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's like we're helpless. We're absolutely helpless, and nobody knows what to do. It's unbelievable. I mean, it's it's it, 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 Mexico is a failed state, right? And so Mexico is a failed state. So Mexico Mexico is a perfect is a perfect ally for the Chinese. The cartels they're not they don't have constituencies, they have customers, and so that's the big difference. And, and guess what? The China has a constituent constituency, and that's the uh, that's the inept Mexican government. And so this whole thing is like, I mean, what can we do? It's unbelievable. What would you suggest? 
Well, I might quibble with you just a little bit about the fact, your assertion that A, the virus was invented in China, and B, that our government is doing nothing to stand up to China. Uh, but you know what? Let's do this. I'll take that on, Fred, because it's actually, it's a geopolitical question that is worth discussion. I'll get to it, but I want to go to Michelle in Plainfield first. Michelle, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. So um, I, I had two things I wanted to say. One was it seemed about the youth mental health crisis, which I hear, I don't have any youths in my family now, but um, it, it seems to me that the whole culture is in a, is in a mental health crisis since January 6th. Yeah. Since Trump, that we've all, I mean, Jamie Raskin, the congressman, said it on, you know, when he was talking about the invasion of the Capitol. It's like everybody is like in shock and dismay, to say the least. And so it seems to me we, we don't, we, it seems to me people, the culture right now has nothing to offer young people. Everything is just sorrow and horror and so I, so I don't know if that is going to help anybody. That's very helpful. Okay, that's point one. What's point two? Oh, um, yes. And point two was this was about uh, the teams. Um, when you were talking about uh, basketball teams, I used to have to walk out of my daughter's um, basketball games because I couldn't stand the tension. Right. I wanted to say. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't watch. Tell me when it's over. I'd walk around the block. Anyway, those are my comments. Thank You're you. very kind to call. Thank you, Michelle. Well, join the club. I know many people in my own family who could not stand the tension as well when I was coaching my own kids' uh, basketball uh, teams. The mental health thing, you're on to something, uh, and I, we're going to really pull it apart on, on next Wednesday's show uh, because it's obviously front and center. Um, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back at the 10 o'clock hour with Bob Ney, our Washington correspondent. We're going to talk about State of the Union aftermath, Chinese spy balloons, and Lord knows what else. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis on WDEV. We're back. Vermont Viewpoint, WDEV. I'm Kevin Ellis. We're going to go right to Washington and to our correspondent, Bob Nay, for all things D.C. Bob, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Kevin. Okay, let's go State of the Union, aftermath. Uh, those of us in Vermont got, a, got a, a fun shock when the cameras panned the audience, and there's Bernie Sanders. He didn't have his mittens and his jacket on like he did at the inauguration, but he did have his N95 mask on. Uh, with and probably scowling underneath the uh, mask. What do you make of the State of the Union aftermath? Do you buy the sort of media narrative that Biden baited a trap for Republicans and uh, got them to agree on not to cut Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and it's a big win for Biden? Well, by the way, I like Bernie's mitten. Bernie's mittens. So. Yeah. <laughs> the State of the Union, onto that specific question, uh, Kevin, I, I've been debating, and I've talked to some friends of mine in D.C., you know, if if a speechwriter or somebody within the political system or the White House said, let's do this, this is going to be the reaction, then you say this, 
I think they're genius and they should have a pay raise. Or was it an ad lib on the part of, of, you know, President Biden? I think it was thrown out there to see what the reaction would be. And, of course, uh, he continued, the president did, uh, at a, you know, speech a couple of times in the last couple of days to continue to say, now, hey, you got to watch the Republicans when it comes to Medicare and Social Security. But obviously he got a reaction off of that, and then he was able to turn around and, I think cleverly say, okay, so you're with me. And Mitch McConnell has followed up and actually kind of scorned Senator Scott for putting anything out there at all in a position paper. That's where this happened. He didn't say specifically Senator Scott didn't, that he would cut Medicare and Social Security or stop them, but he did say all programs in the government would sunset every five years unless you renewed them. So that's right. That's where that came from. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you buy the narrative that uh, this is a win for Biden? And, uh, I mean, David Axelrod, for instance, Obama's uh, guy and uh, CNN commentator said, you know, big win for Biden. Uh, didn't think he had it in him. Uh, I mean, So that's the narrative. Sometimes that sometimes oh. even if it's not true, it becomes true. Well, this, in the State of the Union overall, I analyzed it uh, this week in two different directions, in my mind, to be fair about it, uh, honestly, Kevin, which one was for Biden, he accomplished what he wanted to do. He didn't have any huge faux pas. Um, he had a couple points that were rough in there comparing the attack on Paul Pelosi to directly to January the 6th. Uh, you know, but beyond that, he didn't, you know, do anything so majorly bad. He doesn't have the oratory skills of, of a Reagan uh, or a Clinton or an Obama, but he, you know, he got through it. So that's one way I analyzed it. The other way, though, I analyzed it was he wove through his speech everything about working people, which was great, by the way, manufacturing, America, buy America, et cetera. I'm just not sure at the end, though, how many people listening said, oh, yeah, it's 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 all okay for the workers right now. I, I think he has to, you know, tell what he did, what he believes he did, but I think also needs to honestly address these economic issues. I'm not sure how much that resonated amongst people. So that was the two ways I looked at and, it. And one more thing. Uh the media talked a lot about when when Marjorie Taylor Greene and the right wing of the oh, caucus yeah. started to erupt and call yell at Biden that he was a liar. It looked like Speaker McCarthy was trying to shush them. Okay. Uh, I I saw it. I am not. Sh- I don't know if that's true or not. But it boy, it certainly mm-hmm. did reflect the problem that McCarthy has within that caucus. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, ironically, on Wednesday, my granddaughter was texting me, and I'm like, "Aren't you in class?" <laughs> and she said, "Yes, my, my teacher is here and wants to know some observations about the yelling out at the State of the Union." So I told my granddaughter. When I was there, and I've been through states of the union with you know both Clinton and Bush, um, you, you just, for the most part, ninety nine point nine percent, whether you liked it or not, people didn't yell things out. Now, Nancy Pelosi, you know, to be fair about this, ripped up the speech on TV behind you know Trump, uh, which is is not the protocol. Right. And then people, Joe Wilson, yelled out liar before before that uh, with Obama. And then now Marjorie Taylor Greene yelling out liar. She gets her five minutes, you know, on the media. I think all of it is just it's bad. And they need to get back to where, you know, you can not clap. 
you might even go, hmm, you know, something like that, like when he said about Social Security. But this yelling out, I I just, I don't know. They Somebody needs to stop it. McCarthy, I think, did say you could see, you know, on his lips. Yeah. Uh, and I, by the way, they do this in the caucuses. And a friend of mine told me uh, in D.C., a staffer, that they had those private speeches in the caucus, don't act up. But, of course, that doesn't mean they, they won't act up. Well, as I said before, it's not quite an Irish pub, but, uh, it is getting, it is getting closer. Right. Um, and I, and let's segue to Chinese spy balloons. Uh, I did notice that Mitt Romney all over YouTube now, uh, uh, when he saw George Santos in the chamber, uh, confronted him and said, you should not be here. And then I saw Romney, uh, this morning, uh, praising the Biden administration for the decision to shoot down the balloon and wait till it was over the water. Uh, where are we with that? Well, yeah, the balloon, um, you know, that was the big debate. Sure, there was shooting them. I, I think for any administration, when the balloons enter airspace, like Alaska, Senator Murkowski, a Democrat's complaining up there, um, you know, try to get it when it enters. Now, once they didn't, then uh, because it makes you question, you know, Alaska is the first line of defense. But once they they didn't, they I think they needed to wait, uh, I would assume, to where they knew it wouldn't fall on anybody. It's, it was the size of three school buses. So they did that. Uh, and the fact that they they took it down was a good thing. Don't let the thing float all over the place. You know, it wouldn't have been good for the, you know, the psyche of America, et cetera. And, of course, the Chinese are acting uh, terrible about the, the reaction to it. Mitt Romney, by the way, um, he ironically, he called Santos a sick puppy uh, yeah. when he walked out of Statuary Hall. And there's a puppy story about Santos that's just disgusting uh, <laughs> today in the media. And I want to admit something to you. I have a photo I'll send you, but my first State of the Union, I sat about the fourth row down and I'm on picture and film shaking Bill Clinton's hand. And I, I did that. I bet and that I, went over well with your base of voters. Well, remember my well, my district was sixteen percent Republicans. All it was, uh, so it was yeah, it was okay back in Belmont County. You know, well, he's with Clinton. So, uh, but some Republicans grumbled. But I said, hey, it's the president, which is true, it's the president. But anyway, I wanted to mention I did sit there and sat there a long time to get that seat. And what Romney was referring to is so true. You know, if you sit in those seats, you know you're going to be seen. That's just a fact. Everybody knows it that sits in those seats. Santos, in all the problems he has, he's in deep trouble. He sits there and just has to try to shake people's hands to get a picture with them. They don't want a picture with Santos, you know. I was new. I was okay. Maybe at the end they didn't want a picture with me, but in the beginning it was all right. (laughs) And I think Romney was appropriate in his comments. You know, he knew. We all knew what Santos was doing up there. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's all performative on that evening. I I noticed also – I noticed also Biden, you know, this may be Biden's saving grace politically is that he he doesn't have a lot of filters and barriers. So he marches right up to the Supreme Court justices and shakes their hands, which is not protocol. Uh, the Supreme Court likes to keep its distance from the messiness of politics. But mm-hmm. Biden mm-hmm. just plunged right in. Well, you know, Biden is a creature of the Congress. He was there for over 30 years. Once you've been in Congress, you're sort of institutionalized in the sense of, you know, there's certain protocols, certain things. 
you know, you do. But once you've been there as long as he was, you know, you, you know people. And I think you're a little bit more of a relaxed style, I would think. I, I really do. Uh, whereas if you hadn't served there, you know, it, it would be different. So um, he was – and when Biden was there, he was the casual type of guy, uh, you know, with people. That was his That was his style. He was, you know, like we always would say, Uncle Joe, that you invite to lunch, you know. At the house, and and then you ask him a question, and then he talks. Yeah, that's sort of the persona of Biden. Yeah, that's right. But one thing we did learn is he is definitely running for re-election. Yes, he is. Now the numbers, and this is why I said to be fair about it. You know, I, I don't think it was like a oh wow that was the greatest speech. I just don't, and I'm not sure how much it would resonate with people afterwards unless the actions follow up. However. Like I said in the beginning of the show, though, the the fact that you know he did what he needed to you know accomplish, and, and I and I I really do think that he did that. You know he he got out there and and did what he needed to because he entered the State of the Union and the poll, by the way, is Associated Press, not Fox News. He entered with some of the worst numbers from the Democrats that were polled, not the Republicans, but from the Democrats. His numbers are not good, and. Uh, Although they said they thought he did a decent job, vast majority said they don't want him to run again. So this was the soft launch, launch for his campaign, and I think he made it clear he's going to run. And, Bob, uh, before we let you go, uh, can you talk to us about the upcoming – I can't believe I'm actually saying this – presidential yeah. campaign. Uh, the Democrats are clearly going to make this a campaign over uh, – Entitlement spending and Biden's going to kind of challenge the uh, the Republicans to a budget deficit cutting plan. Right, and I think a lot of this is going to be economics. I mean, there's so many so much theatrics these days in politics and entertainment at the congressional level, but it's going to boil down to you know economics, gasoline, inflation, food prices, and the national budget because. Look, as people are really having a tough time in America, you know, the Congress has spent and spent and spent and spent, which normal, regular citizens can't do to get themselves, you know, out of out of problems. So I think it's going to be honed in by the Republicans. On the other side of it, though, you know, the president set the stage yesterday talking about entitlements and, you know, what they're going to do or not do. So the Republicans are going to have to, you know, have it made clear they're going to protect Social Security and Medicare, but... Everybody is going to have to decide how you do this. The president's going to come from raising taxes, and the Republicans are going to come from cuts. And there might be maybe, just maybe, a little blend of the two to get through this. So this is going to be a big battle at the at the heart of everything, and it's going to start real soon. Maybe Biden's dream comes true, which is to unite moderates in both parties Never know. around a spending plan. <laughs> You never know. I right. I saw many a bipartisan budget vote when I was there, and that was Gingrich's speaker and Clinton as president. Nobody ever thought that could happen. Yeah, yeah. I I, I think that uh, the politics has changed so much that that may not be possible. But let's we can sure. only hope. I hope. Bob Nay from Washington. As always, we love our chats on Friday. Uh, we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Okay. Thank you. We are going to come right back uh, and do a little more open phones. I got to say, I love talking to Bob Nay. He's great. <laughs> Former Republican congressman, 
uh, got in a little trouble, uh, in his career and boy, he's bounced back and he is a, he is a right down the middle, uh, incisive, uh, commentator on all things Washington DC. I can't get enough of it. We're going to get him for longer next time. We're going to take a break. We'll be back with open phones, 244-1777. I'm Kevin Ellis. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. Open phones. At 1045, we're going to talk about the Burlington Police Department and the situation there with Courtney Lambden, the Burlington reporter for seven days. And I look forward to that. But before we do, I need to update you on my driveway. Um, and then we'll go to Marcia and Barry, but, uh, my driveway is shoveled and I know this audience cares deeply about my, uh, snow shoveling, uh, trials. So last night, uh, got it shoveled in the rain because uh, I knew that it would just get wetter and wetter and harder and harder. So got it shoveled. And of course this morning it was a sheet ice, uh, just a complete ice rink. You could have skated on it. So spread some sand, stole my, uh, five gallon bucket, uh, uh, chunk of sand from the East Montpelier, uh, sand pile. Uh, there's a crazy sign there that says, please take your sand. You get one bucket each and then, but please take it from the top of the pile, not the bottom. So the sign would indicate that that means you have to climb to the top of the pile, which must be 50 feet high to get your sand and then climb back down the pile as opposed to just taking it from the bottom and with your shovel, fill the bucket, put it in the back of your car. Uh, for the life of me, I don't know why, and I haven't had the chance to talk to uh, the my esteemed representatives on the uh, select board or from the road crew to ask them what that sign means. But anyway, for those of you who care, my driveway shoveled and sanded, and uh, with today's temperature going into the high 40s, fantastic, um, I think I'm going to be just fine. With that, let's go to Marsha in Barry. Marsha, you are on the show. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks, Kevin, and congratulations on your driveway. <laughs> Thank That's you. That's how I feel. You're welcome. That's how I feel when I when I when I do my walk. So, you know, it's a good feeling. Now, Marcia, yeah. are you wearing are you wearing spikes on the bottom of your shoes so you don't slip? No, but I have North 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 Face kids boots to wear on my feet because I because I have tiny feet and they and they and they do really well. But my cane has spikes on it. So oh, there you go. Okay. I'm all set. I don't. I don't have that far to go. I, I have two. I have two quick comments. Well, one's a quick comment. The other one's a bit longer. It's on the state. It's state of the union. I think what it's evolving into and through uh, is prime. Prime is prime minister's questions. Yeah. That's what it's beginning to sound to sound like. Except. They in England, uh, it sounds like sounds like like a zoo. Yeah, Mar- Marcia, do you think it's a good thing or a bad thing? It's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah. It's 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 a bad thing. I don't I don't know. I I wasn't able to discern um, McCarthy's fate, fate, 
facial expressions, but I w- wonder if they thought that, that that he was blowing kisses at them. I don't think, right. you know. <laughs> but no, I think it's terrible. And um, but it's only a few, right? Which doesn't make may, which doesn't make it right. But it's the same few who are really. Out, out, outrageous and obstreperous, and um, you know, I don't, I don't know what you do, except perhaps their, perhaps their, their, their constituencies have to say some, 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 something, because that's, you know, unless they think it's a violation of the ethics, we'll have to see, right? Because that's an internal. Um, affair that I think they set their their own rules for their ethics and we'll see but it's it's terrible Marcia, there was a lot of wisdom that just came out of your mouth, including the word obstreperous, which... Uh, I think it's obstreperous with a B. Obstreperous. So did, does that come from uh, going to school in, in Barry City long ago, or where, where does that word come from? I didn't go to school in Barry City long, 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 long ago. I... I went to came to Cambridge Mass, then to Jamaica Plain, then I went to Newton High School, which at that time was the best high school in the in the country. Then I went on to Boston University for uh-huh. on, on undergrad and grad, and then I went to Vermont Law, Law School, and uh-huh. I do not know where in that saga. Obstreperous came. Well, in, but, uh, <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you one thing. One of those words when I could still read print. As a parent of a young of a daughter who went to Cambridge Ringe and Latin High School, mm-hmm. uh, I can hear I can hear a little East Cambridge in in that accent of yours. Oh my God! You're you're very very lo- local. That's something. <laughs> yeah, we we lived for a while on ship. Here on F. Sure. So uh, yeah. Uh, Good for you. No, I I I went to the P to the Peabody School. Oh, you did. Yep. Well, that that was a that was a that was a grammar school. Well, my my daughter uh, did eighth grade at the old Agassiz School um, off oh. off Mass Ave, and of course they changed the name to of Agassiz because uh, he's an old Harvard guy. But he was mm-hmm. a slave owner, I believe, or who advocated slave owning. So they changed the name, and she's my daughter's going to kill me because I can't remember what they changed the name to. But we oh. we drove by the Peabody School many many times. Oh yeah, it's a it's a it's a great old place with its wooden floors. Didn't the ag didn't the ag Agassiz move to Jamaica Plain? Because that's where I went to fourth, fifth, and sixth grade. <laughs> So I, uh, unless there's a second one, I'm uh, I'm furiously googling uh, Agassiz School while you're talking. But uh, we, you know, we should move on to your uh, the second yeah, point I, you wanted to make. Thank you. Yeah, I was just going to say it's a, it's about whether or not the state, uh, the legislature, wants to ban um, these militia camps like Slate Ridge. Right. And I heard what you said that 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 they're probably going to have a big um, big Second Amendment battle, 
And I have have a feeling that the state will win because the um, dis- decisions from the the Supreme Court tend 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 to up- uphold the second part of the Second Amendment, which are uh, the right of the people to to uh, bear arms shall shall not be 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 abridged and the. Um, uh, the cases have have been basically about individual rights, but an expansion of individual rights with the with the carry laws in New York. I think if the state comes comes to argue, uh, comes to argue that they're setting up these militias, I think the first part 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 of the amendment could 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 be um, on their side because it says a well-regulated militia. Right. And that is not what these camps are. Yeah, that's right. So, so that's my feeling. Marsha, uh, it, it, it is a serious <laughs> issue for serious uh, discussion. And <clears throat> I think we're appointing you the new legal analyst for Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV because uh, I did not know you went to Vermont Law School. So please... Uh, we'll, we'll come back to you for all things legal, and thank you so much for the call. By the way, my daughter went to, they renamed the Agassiz School, uh, off of uh, Mass Ave. They renamed it the uh, Baldwin School. That's a K through 8 in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, we'll be right back to do some more open phones. If you're waiting on the line, hang on. We'll get to you after the break. It's Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. In decades past, you opened a business, hung out your shingle, and the customers came. Today, hanging out your shingle means creating an engaging website. The modern consumer is using the Internet to find businesses like yours. Are you positioned so you'll rise to the top of their search? Let the Radio Vermont Group Digital Services work with you to make sure you're visible online and to target your marketing to location, demographic, and interest. Learn more at rvgdigital.com. We're back on Vermont Viewpoint. I'm Kevin Ellis. And boy, if you thought we had a star guest from the New York Times uh, to talk about COVID, uh, we're going to top it with the the one and only Jill Schlesinger, uh, business analyst for CBS News, syndicated columnist and author of uh, the column Jill on Money and the latest book, The Great Money Reset, although I love her first book, The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money. Madam Schlesinger, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you. So there we're going to have a political standoff for the next few months over the debt limit. Uh, if you are an average investor in this country, what should you be doing? Nothing. You should really should not be doing anything. Um, you should stick to your game plan. You should not try to figure out what's going to happen next. You should kind of drown out the noise. Um, you know, there is certainly going to be, if this does not get settled, there'll be a lot more ups and downs or volatility that we'll see. But, you know, by and large, even if it's like a bit of a disaster, and it could be, you know, yeah. if we wait to the, the bitter end, right? Right. Even if markets collapsed, even if the U.S. debt got downgraded, 
when in the past, this happened in 2011, let's say, it was awful. The market went down by 14% over the course of five weeks. It was not pleasant for anyone living through it. But we reset and we got to where we were before. It just took a while to recover. I think the larger issue is that, you know, depending on how this goes down, the economy right now is a little bit fragile in that we're slowing down. I mean, I'm not saying we're in a recession or going into a recession, but economic growth is definitely slowing down. So the fact that this is all going on in the background is it's kind of noise and it is somewhat distracting and it kind of wish it weren't happening at this moment. Uh, you're talking to an audience in Vermont where it, it, I would call it uh, the land of Bernie Sanders and the most liberal legislature in the country where we are going to levy a payroll tax to pay for paid family leave, child care, all sorts of climate resiliency issues. Um, be the state economist for just a minute and advise our Republican, very popular Republican governor how do how do how do you handle the all these democratic proposals to spend a lot of money? Do you sit tight or do you resist? Hmm. I, I I don't know. I can, if I can comment on that. I feel like I'm <laughs> out of my depths on that. I don't do political analysis. I feel like you need John Dickerson on the line. Well, um, it, you, know, you know, it were states should states be spending money to improve the welfare of their citizens at the moment? Or should we buckle down and save money for a rainy day? I guess that's the question. I mean, it's ideally, it's sort of like a little bit of both. Right. And, you know, I think it's tough to make a judgment on that, not knowing, like, what exists. And, you know, I think that the, you know, on a federal level, we have a system in place where, um, you know, we do try to take care of people. And if the federal system is not enough, states can step in in places like Vermont or a place like New York or a place like California tends to step in a little bit more robustly. Um, but, yeah, of course, there are always trade-offs. So, you know, I'm cognizant of that. But, um, yeah, I, I can't really say that, you know, that is not really, as I said, not exactly my uh, field of expertise. <laughs> Tell us about your uh, second book, The Great Money Reset. Well, I, um, I host a radio show and two podcasts. And, you know, amid the pandemic, we kind of went crazy, all of us sitting at home. And we decided to go crazy on our show. My producer, Mark, and I decided to go to a daily podcast seven days a week because people were freaking out so much. Oh. And we just took questions day after day. People came on the air with us, and, you know, we, we really started to get to the bottom of a lot of the things that were going on. And you remember we had all those different stimulus programs and tried to help people who had small businesses, and we were all kind of wading through this uncertainty together. And, you know, I would say a few months into it, things were settling down a bit, and people started asking very different kinds of questions. I would say in 2021, the questions really were less technical and more philosophical. And the philosophical one that uh, always gets me is, is this really how I want to live? And yeah. people would call this money show, the Jill on money show, and start asking me questions. And I realized through a lot of these stories that people wanted some sort of framework for figuring out how to reset their lives. And that framework had to have some financial component because they didn't want to blow up their lives and 
mess everything up for people and their family, and they also wanted to make sure they were being responsible. So the book is a series of stories about how people opted to change their work and change their wealth and change their lives, and I try to outline a structure to help them do so more responsibly than they would have perhaps before they gave us a shout. So inevitably, you're going to you're focused a bit on the the Great Resignation, and uh, you're right. I see it everywhere: the the people starting side hustles, the uh, the 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 factory worker, or the plumber who's going to go off and start a, a some other business. It's happening everywhere. People don't want to go to the office. And uh, we're, I'm not sure, well, the one thing I'm sure of is that getting, quote, back to normal, uh, people are sending a resounding message that I didn't like back to normal pre-pandemic. You know, there, I mean, I think what's also interesting is that, you know, we live our lives and we had certain expectations. Many of us, you know, I'm from an older generation, I'm in my 50s, had an idea about what our work lives were going to be, how we were going to approach when we would kind of start to off-ramp. And, you know, a combination of factors, not just the pandemic, but a workforce of younger people who really questioned that orthodoxy. Yeah. You know, it was very eye-opening for me, you know, work your butt off and then retire or no, don't retire, but work and work really hard and work at however hard you need to to achieve. And I can just tell you, like, I've learned a lot from my colleagues at CBS News who are younger, who really do have that questioning of, do I really want to be 100% in this thing called work at the expense of so many other things in my life? And so, you know, old farts like me called it work-life balance. And I think the younger generation was really on to something. And to that extent, what I think is kind of imperative for all of us is to take a look and say, hey, is this the path that I still want to be on? Just to give yourself permission to ask that question might seem anathema to many of us. But even if you just ask the question or even go through some of the steps of the Great Money Reset, you might find on the other side of that that you're actually happy where you are, which is totally great. It's fantastic. But it is incumbent on us all to take some responsibility and at least ask the question and talk to your to your spouse or partner or talk to your family members. We learned a lot during that pandemic. It would be a shame to go through that horrible, horrible three years and not come out with a different feeling about who we are in the world. Uh, last question. If you're going to do that, if you're going to cons- consider a reset, what are the f- top few things that you've got to do before you quit the job? The day well, job. You know, I think, yeah, I mean, look, I think that you mentioned something which is smart about a, a side hustle. If you have a side hustle, you know, that's a great thing to just start to explore um, kind of what your passion is and see, you know, how that goes. I have an analysis. I call it the fabulous five. It's essentially five steps and they're like hardcore old school financial planning steps. I'm a certified financial planner by training. So the steps are, number one, you calculate your resources. So that would be your assets, but also your income and the benefits you're receiving from your employer. Really important, right? Number two, take a look at the debt that you have outstanding. It could be your student loans. It could be your mortgage. It could be a credit card. It could be a car. No judgments here, gang. Really, this is just listing it out, all right? Number three, consider your housing situation. Are you a happy owner? Do you love renting? 
Did you figure out that maybe you live really far from your aging parents and that's just not going to work for the next 10 or 20 years? Uh, that housing part is really also interesting for people who own homes and might have a lot of equity that's socked away in that house. The fourth step is uh, the the really the, the worst for many, which is you've got to figure out how much money you're spending. I have a whole chapter on consumption. Again, no judgments. You just got to look at it. And the last step of the fabulous five is consider your obligations. You know, it may be well and good for you to wake up one morning and be like, I need to reset my life. And the next question might be, well, what does that mean? Did I told my kids I was going to pay for school or I told my siblings we were going to help chip in for mom and dad or I told my partner that we were going to be on a pathway so that we could somehow figure out how to get a ski house, you know, up, up, you know, at Burlington. Right. And to me, this is these are really important steps. They they cause you to question your status quo, and then you build out scenarios of whatever you want to do next and consider the impact on those five steps. Okay. The fabulous Jill Schlesinger, uh, that's the fabulous five. Her podcast is Jill on Money. You can find her jillonmoney.com, and uh, it, and her latest book is uh, The Great Money Reset. Thank you, Jill, so much for joining us. We appreciate it. Oh, it was a great pleasure. Have a wonderful weekend. You too. Okay, quick break. We're going to come back with Courtney Lambden from Seven Days to talk about the never-ending saga of the Burlington Police Department, City Council, the mayor, and everything in between. You're listening to Vermont Viewpoint on WDEV. We're back. It's Vermont Viewpoint, and we are talking about the Burlington Police Department, and we are lucky to have Courtney Lambden, the Burlington reporter for seven days, on the line with us to explain it. Courtney, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me again. I appreciate it. Oh, always a pleasure. But I got to tell you, the politics of police reform, I think, is what we're talking about here. And it's pitting advocates of deep, deep reform against Moreau Weinberg of the mayor and others uh, who want to go a little slower. I may have that right, but why don't you enlighten us? Yeah, essentially, you've got it. You know, this um, this debate over police oversight has been active, really, for the last two years or really longer than that, I guess. Um, it dates back to when the residents of Burlington learned um that a few Burlington officers had allegedly used excessive force against particularly young black men and then later a disabled older white man. Um, those incidents all came out around the same time and <clears throat> really caused people to organize around the idea of increasing civilian oversight of the police department. And as you've described, there are kind of two factions, I guess, in the city that have potentially the same goal in mind, but different ways of getting there. And so the the mechanics of this is there is a proposal on the ballot to establish a police control board, and that will be voted on by the voters in March uh, to create an independent department of the city to look over the police. And that, if passed, that's a charter change that has to be approved by the legislature, I believe. Yes, and the governor. And the governor, right. Okay. There's a long road yet. And, you know, the way that it could be, if it passes, you know, it could all, it could be amended in the legislature. It could sit on the wall 
or it could be vetoed like other, you know, Burlington charter changes have been. Yeah. Um, so who, how did this get on the ballot? Who's behind it? Right. So as with everything in Burlington, there's a long political history. Right. Uh, in, in this case, as I kind of started saying before, um, it dates back to uh, 2020, which, of course, was a year of reckoning for the entire country over racial injustice. At the end of 2020, the progressive caucus in the city approved, you know, pushed through the council this exact measure uh, that would have put it on the ballot in early 2021. But on New Year's Day or New Year's Eve, I think, uh, that year, uh, Moreau Weinberger, the mayor, vetoed it, and the progressives, you know, didn't have enough support on the council to override his veto. So the issue has kind of um, been working through, you know, it, it hasn't been on the council agenda. No one has taken up this exact issue on the council. But in the meantime, a group of advocates in the community have taken up the, the topic and have been circulating a petition, which in Burlington, you can petition to put a charter change on the ballot if you collect at least 5% uh, signatures from at least 5% of registered voters. And so this group, which calls itself People for Police Accountability, uh, accomplished that this past year and, you know, submitted their petitions on time. And in doing so, bypassed the typical process for charter changes, which is that, the you know, they usually come from a counselor, a city council committee, they're approved or, or you know, signed off on or vetoed by the mayor. This way of doing it bypasses that whole system and goes directly onto the ballot. I'm going to make a guess, but I don't think there's any way that the legislature is going to pass this nor the governor is going to sign it, uh, which puts Mayor Moreau Weinberger in the same uh, chair with uh, the governor of the state. That's a prediction, and every time I predict anything, it always goes the <laughs> other way, so... Don't listen to what I'm telling you. Um, what is the mayor saying, uh, Courtney, about this? So the mayor is uh, vehemently opposed to this proposal. He feels that um, it is an untested system that would uh, have people who don't have experience in law enforcement by design would not be on this group. He feels like that uh, is is not the way that oversight should be handled. Um, and it might be easier, Kevin, if I explain to listeners what this board is, yeah. and um, and that might help people understand some of the uh, objections and you know reasons for supporting it. Please. So, yeah. So essentially, um, this this group uh, of people, it would be between seven and nine members. The the selection process for this board is kind of unique. Um, what would happen is that the mayor and city council would essentially assemble a list of community organizations uh, focused on, you know, racial justice, civil rights, though, and staff from those organizations would nominate people to a selection committee. Members of that committee would be the ones vetting the applicants to serve on this board. So there are layers of separation between the mayor, the political parties, the mayor and the city council and the actual people on the board. And that is by design. The mayor dis disagrees with that design. He thinks that, that just, you know, 
that that it's unique in because in normal circumstances the mayor and city council approve people to boards and commissions. So that's one of his um, hesitancies with it. Um, this group would have the ability to investigate officers for for misconduct. They could discipline officers, including the chief of police. Um, the police chief would still have a role in disciplining officers, but this board could overrule his decisions. So that is a, another you know point that Moreau disagrees with. He does not think, um, while he doesn't agree that the that the chief of police should have the ultimate say, he is concerned that this group, um, that, that this board has would have you know unprecedented authority and that it could go unchecked. So the, the, that's kind of a, I guess a summary of his feelings about and, it. And this all takes place against the backdrop of Memphis, uh, George Floyd. Uh, you know, I mean, just it it never ends and. Like it or not, the Burlington Police Department is caught up in this uh, nationwide debate over the role, the very role of police. Uh, and you've covered this story, uh, going all the way back to the, uh, to the protests on the green there. Um, I mean, tell us your ex- personal experience of covering this police issue for as many years as you've, uh, covered it. What have you learned and where are we headed? That's a big question. Um, you know, I've I've learned that. Uh, I mean, my experience. Yes, I, I did cover um, some of the protests in 2020, which included, you know, uh, a demonstration against our newspaper. Yeah. Um, pro- protesters rounded up a bunch of copies and and kind of turned them into protest signs, which was you know their right to do that. Right. Um, it was it was kind of a surreal experience to. Ex- to witness it, but um, it was also, you know, I felt um, it was not an experience, I think, maybe that many journalists get. So in some strange way, I feel kind of uh, privileged to to have uh, seen seen how people react so directly to what our paper produces. Right, um, right. No, I didn't write the story that they were protesting, but, um, you know, but it was my organization, of course. So, um what have I learned about policing in Burlington? I've learned that there are, um, I do feel that there are two, uh, that, that both all sides of Burlington's political scene, um, I think do want to change the status quo, but I really do, like I said before, I think it comes down to how do, how does the city get there and what is acceptable to, you know, everybody. And I think that there are a lot of different forces. Obviously, Burlington has a strong advocate activist community. Um, Burlington also has a strong police union. Um, And I think that a lot of times the goals of those uh, two groups are at odds, right? So um, I don't know where we're going. I don't have any predictions about this particular item. What I know about covering Burlington politics is that, that there that the people who support this obviously are are well organized. They were able to get more than 1,700 signatures on a petition, which is no small feat. That's right. Um, and so those people are obviously motivated to get this to pass. But at, on the other side, so is Moreau Weinberger. He he uh, to get it to fail. He and his chief of staff have formed a political action committee specifically to defeat this item. 
So, um, and he held a press conference a couple weeks ago where many community leaders stood up behind him and said, you know, this is a bad idea. So I think it's really, you know, they always say like voter turnout. It depends on who you who you can get riled up about something yeah. and get to the polls. And I really have no predictions of how that might go. Courtney, as a former police reporter myself in Nashville, Tennessee, in some bad, dark old days, uh, I respect your work. Thanks for coming on the show. Anytime. Thanks okay. for having me. That's our show for today. You can email us at vtviewpointradiovermont.com. This live show becomes a podcast where you can listen on your own time. WDEVradio.com. Click on the podcast button. You can find me at KevinKEllis.com. Subscribe to my weekly blog where I write about a lot of these same issues. I'm on Twitter as well. I'll be back Wednesday to talk about the mental health crisis in Vermont with at least one guest, Mark Redman of Spectrum Family Youth Services in Burlington, among others. As always, we'll talk politics in Vermont and the nation the snow in my dooryard, and everything else on my mind and yours with an aim towards exploration and insight. And we will take it all up on Wednesday, so please join us. Our show is directed, produced, engineered, and managed by the master, Danny McGivergan. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Kevin Ellis. We'll see you right back here Wednesday on Vermont Viewpoint, live radio on the friendly pioneer WDEV.